Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to Unfiltered. My name's Ollie Dugmore, and our guest today is a footballer. Her career began in Holland, aged just 14. She was too young to sign the contract herself. Since then, she's become the all-time leading scorer in the Women's Super League, scored more goals for the Netherlands than any other player, man or woman, won the Euros, played in the World Cup final, and signed a quarter of a million pound contract extension with Arsenal earlier this year, although that is according to the Daily Mail, so who knows. Despite all the success, she came close to retirement at the age of 18. She said, I don't really like being the centre of attention, and sometimes I struggle with depression. Ian Wright says, she's the best number nine in the world, and she's the best number ten in the world. There's not many players that can do that. My guest today is Viv Miedemar. How's it going, Viv? Oh, good. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. And all the better for having you here. Um, thank you for having me. What have you been up to? Rehab, mostly. Um, obviously, as many know, I've done my ACL in December. I'm six months in right now, uh, starting to be on the pitch again, but... As you've seen as well, I'm still a bit stiff. So, yeah, a couple more months to go. I saw a video of you, I think, running for running for the first time with the new ACL. Yeah, yeah, last week. Um, I've never felt an elephant and a snail at the same time. <laughs> Although everyone else was saying it looked really, really good for the first time. Uh, yeah, just getting used to it again. Mm-hmm. And what was it like being back out on the pitch, running, moving like that? Feels good? Yeah, I mean, good. Uh, I was really anxious beforehand, to be fair, because I struggled walking. Mm. Um, but they said once I start running it will loosen off so I went out on the pitch all my teammates were there and that kind of helped me through it because yeah the day before I didn't really sleep that well I wonder if there's a little bit almost of self-doubt in your mind in a moment like that when you're going to do it for the first time whether I don't know it might be running or it could be doing some rehab in the gym putting a bit of stress on it that it hasn't experienced before you must be sort of doubting yourself about whether you're strong enough or what you know oh my god is something am I going to get injured again or anything like that it must be all going through your head no, definitely. I think throughout the whole process, as you say, like biking for the first time, jumping, running, it's all movements that when you're little, like it's the most normal thing to do. Then once you get injured, your body has kind of let you down. So going back into that, you start overthinking, like, is my knee strong enough? Is my body used to it? Am I ready for this? Um, in a gym throughout the whole process so far, I've been always overthinking everything. So like my physio is like, you can do this, but I need three or four times before I start believing myself that I can do it. And then once I've got it, like it's fine and I glide through things. But um, yeah, it is kind of like getting used to a new body. Like it's not my knee anymore. Like there's new ACL on there. Like other things have happened in there. 
So yeah, it's just small steps. Especially as well when your body is so central to not just your career, but I guess your sense of self. Getting injured like that, it you know, a regular person hurts their ACL, they're kind of like, okay, well, my body's hurt, but I'm the same person. And I guess maybe it provokes broader questions about like your identity and who you are when something as significant as that happens. I think that's what I've seen with a lot of girls, like throughout my career, um, a lot of girls are doing their ACLs, which is obviously a set a set fact. But for me, I've always seen myself as like being a person and being a footballer. So I think because I've developed myself off the pitch, I struggled less being injured. Although, um, yeah, the first question you get is like, oh, how's your rehab going? How's your knee going? Like, it's always about your knee. It's always about you as a footballer first. Um, but yeah, I've I've actually enjoyed bits of not being able to yeah play at the moment. Like I've picked up like some other things outside of football. Not to have the constant pressure of playing or performing has been quite nice sometimes. Well, let's do exactly that and then stop talking about the knee and let's talk about you as a person. Although just before we started recording, you did tell me that your early life was quite boring, so I might reg- I might regret asking you. This about might this. be a really short podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but let's. We like to begin at the beginning on Unfiltered, so let's do that. How do you remember how do you remember growing up in your hometown, Hukavate? Um yeah, it was I mean, very quiet to be fair. Um told you it was gonna be boring. <laughs> but no, like I grew up uh, with my parents in Hoogveen. Then we moved to a place called Ansen. I don't even think you'll find it on maps. Um they owned a restaurant, so like between me being four or five years old till like I was 10, 11, um, I basically didn't see my parents that much because they were obviously really busy like with the restaurant all the time. My granddad was a chef and my gran was also working in the restaurant. So it was like a big family business. Um, my brother came along four years after me. So um, yeah, at one point they got too busy with combining both. Like we were both playing football. We both obviously had to go to school. So then we moved back to Hogeveen. Um, and yeah, since since then, I've only stayed four more years there, and then I moved up to to Heerenveen already when I was fourteen. Who's the best cook in the family then? If it run if it runs like that, um, I mean, I'm gonna say myself, but no. really, I've, no. I was when I was doing my research for this, I heard quite a few comments about you struggling to cook scrambled eggs and stuff. I no, in the begin in the beginning, like I really really struggled, like um, but I'm I'm actually pretty decent now. But yeah, my my granddad was a really good chef. My mom was actually really good. Um. I think my dad and my brother are kind of, yeah, behind that a bit. I would, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but you just, I didn't, I realizing that sort of home comforts when you move away, and we'll talk about your move to Bayern later. But I imagine just like a home cooked meal from your family was probably something that really you perhaps started to miss when you moved away. Yeah, no, definitely. I think especially the first time when I moved to Heerenveen, I was so used to coming home from school, mum having my dinner ready, then heading to train, and that. You didn't. You missed the rhythm, but you. I mostly missed the meals, um, <laughs> and obviously, even like when I was younger, like I loved my my granddad was actually. Um, he was in a wheelchair. He had a car accident when he was twenty, and uh, he was the very first chef in Holland with a disability that cooked for the Queen, uh, which is quite a cool story. It's cool. Um, but because he was in a wheelchair, I was always allowed to like stand on the little steps in between. And then, like, he was just teaching me how to cook and cut things and how to mix things together. So, um, yeah, it was obviously, like, it's little things that you still think about quite a bit. Um, my granddad obviously wrote down recipes and everything. So although I'm not home anymore, I am still having the home-cooked meals. Not as good as he did, but 
I'm getting close. Getting getting closer every day. Um, did he go and watch you play as well as a as a younger player? Yeah, he was a massive football fan. Uh, that's kind of what started. Like, obviously, my granddad and my dad, they were both, well, my granddad was a massive fan and my dad was playing. Um, so I didn't really have a chance, like a choice when I was younger. Um, he was there all the time. So if my mom and dad couldn't bring me, it was like my grandparents going with me. Um, sad thing about it was that he was an Ajax fan. So <laughs> from young age, I was a Feyenoord fan. So it always was against each other, which was quite nice, to be fair. Um, but yeah, even... One of, I think, the most beautiful moments in my career was when we won the Euros, obviously, in 2017. And I scored on the side that the disability rank was. So, like, the moment I scored and I turned around, I just seen my grandparents sit in the crowd and they were both crying. And, yeah, that obviously had, like, a massive impact on me on the pitch. And then after that as well, like, it's one of those moments you'll never forget. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about your family dynamic, your parents and you and your brother. Um, I'm really close with my brother. He is four years younger than me, so um, he's 23 right now. But yeah, growing up together and both loving football, um, yeah, you just really grew very closely to each other really quickly. Um, one of the nice things about it as well was that when I started playing for Heere Fein, he was in their youth academy. So we got picked up together after school to go in like this little mini bus. Um, and then obviously he done his thing, I done my thing, got back in the car again. So like we've always had that special connection. Um, obviously throughout his career, my career, like if we want to know something or kind of had to make a big decision, like it was always us two, like kind of sorting each other out. Um, which must have been quite difficult for my mom and dad sometimes, maybe because because we were so close, we on early age felt like we didn't need our mom and dad anymore. Um, I hear that a lot still. <laughs> but yeah, they've always been there for me as well. Like my mom and dad are always in the stadium when they can. They like to come over to England. So I've got a really small family, which is probably good because uh, sometimes it can get quite heated. But um, yeah, it's only the five of us right now. So if I was to um, ask you, if your brother was sat in that chair and I was to ask him to describe you, what do you think he'd say? How would he talk about you? Um, Probably like quite similar to him. So when when it's just us two or when it's people around us like we we kind of like being in the background uh not the center of attention he'd probably say that i'm very honest which i think is a good thing some people struggle with that um <laughs> uh, and, honesty is a good thing surely yeah i mean obviously like i'm dutch so we are quite direct um which along the way in my career sometimes have put me in uh, difficult situations but um you live and you learn for the other ones not for me so, um, but yeah, he would definitely say that I'm very caring, uh, always, yeah, there for everyone in the family. And um, yeah, I would probably say the same thing about him as well. Mm-hmm. I know this is a, quite a common experience for a lot of women when they first start playing football is that they end up playing for boys' teams rather than with girls. I understand that was the same case for you. What are your first memories playing on the football pitch? Just with boys, as you say, like all my friends, um, they were all boys, like used to just, wake up in the morning before we go to school and like ring all the doorbells and be like come on let's play um then started playing for Hassad Fifein Hope Fifein later went to Fefe de Vida. always played with the boys as well uh, I was mostly the only girl but we had one or two seasons that there was like a different like another girl with me in the team but I always felt like one of the boys and then the moment that 
the game was done or the Saturday was done, then I obviously had like my girlfriends as well in school. So I've never seen it as an issue. I also think that is due to how good the boys were with me. Mm. And what about the boys on the opposition team? They were laughing sometimes, but I made sure that they weren't laughing anymore after the game. Um, Bang a couple of hat-tricks in, job done. Yeah, so we play FC Groningen, which is obviously like a high, like a yeah, first efficient, like first efficient team. Um, and the boys were laughing. They were like, oh, they've got a girl, so it's going to be an easy game. Then it was like, I think it was 3-0 at halftime to them. And then second half, I came out and I scored five goals. And we actually won the game. And one of the boys actually came up to me and he was like, I'm so sorry for my teammates, but you were really, really good today. And I was like, that's probably the nicest thing someone has said to me so far. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, for me, it was always like really nice to be part of yeah a boys team. I was reading um, that one of your earliest memories involves you having your front teeth kicked out. Is that yeah. right? That yeah, it's not actually my front teeth. It was like, like um, yeah, the back teeth. I think we played. We had a little tournament, and I went like for a fifty-fifty with the goalie, and I was like, I'm not gonna give up. And the goalie basically just came out with like feet up, and and my mom and dad were like mortified when they seen me on the floor, obviously, because yeah. there was blood everywhere, and like I had cuts. Um, I had cuts under my eye as well, so I needed a couple stitches. But since then, I've been more careful with fifty-fifties. To be fair. <laughs> Possibly for the best. Um, and and what about footballing icons, people that you looked up to from a young age? Um, I'm a Feyenoord fan, so it was like Robin van Persie, Dirk Kuyt, Thomas Buffel. Um, basically that, kind of that golden generation because they obviously won the UEFA Cup in 2002, um, which I was, I went to the semi-finals before. I, I went to the stadium with my dad and we were sitting like behind the hooligans. And all night they were just smoking weed. And in the back, like on the way back in the car, I was like, Dad, like I've got such a sore head. Like I feel like everything is turning around me. And he was like, hmm, must have been the weed from there in the game. <laughs> so um, great experience. <laughs> Wanted to go back to the stadium the next week. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've I've always been a Feyenoord fan. So I looked up to them players. And then obviously once you get a bit older, you start following them. You start like watching the games here in England. Like obviously uh, Robin first at Arsenal, then at Man U. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was, yeah, he probably had the biggest influence on my career and the way I play as well. Throughout all of these early years, you're, you're, you're playing with lads, you're, you're footballing icons and men as well. Were you conscious of the fact that there weren't really any, for want of a better word, famous female footballers for you to look up to. Did it just feel natural? It wasn't, well, you weren't really conscious of it at the time. No, I generally think till the age of 12, 13, um, I thought I was just going to play for Feyenoord, for for the national team. Um, I, you don't realise, I think, at a younger age, at, at that moment in time, that they've got a women's team and that there is women's leagues, uh, which is obviously a great development for women's football over the last couple of years that mm-hmm. where you go to your games, like you've got girls with Williamson, like Williamson on the back uh, with me to mine Holland. And, um, but yeah, for me, I always thought, oh, I'm one of the boys now, so I'll be one of the boys later. Okay, so at 14, you get that offer to play in the top Dutch women's league and your parents had to sign the contract for you because you were so young. How did you come to make that decision? Because obviously, as you mentioned your relationship with your brother, did you sort of talk it through with him, talk it through with your parents? Can you talk me through that process? Um, 
I was speaking with my mom and dad, obviously, at that moment, uh, because they had to sign it for me. So even if I wanted it and they weren't allowing me to, it would have been a, <laughs> a different story probably all along. But um, I remember just, I started playing national team when I was 13 for the under 15s. And I was speaking to a couple of the girls who had been playing with boys, then made a step to like, it was basically like a team in between. So it was like a second team for like the professional clubs. And they were like, I think it's really good if you make the step because it becomes more professional. You become seen by the national teams. Um, so I decided to make the step because it was easy because I could travel with my brother uh, and it wasn't too far away. And obviously the boys at that age, like 14, 15, they start going out on Friday night, like little parties. And I was like, no, I want to be a professional. So yeah, then when Heerenveen came along, it was quite an easy choice. An easy choice to make then you get there. Was there a degree of intimidation, maybe? I mean, 14, I'm thinking of myself, if I was to, at that age, go into a sporting environment, competing with pros, you know, 30-year-old players, I'd find that to be a very intense experience. Yeah, I think it was both ways. Like, I think it was really intense for me, but also for the other girls, because I walked into a changing room with, with women who were like 30 years old, had been playing professional for 10 years, uh, work alongside of it, because obviously that was what, what was needed. Um, and I walk in there as a 14-year-old with my backpack on because I just came straight from school and I had to do my maths homework and they were like, oh, like, how are we going to deal with this? Like, how are we going to help her? How are we going to treat her? Because um, at that moment in time, there was no protection either for like me being younger. Um, so I struggled the first couple months, but luckily enough, like, my two best mates now, uh, Maruska and Ingrid, they were at the club as well. And they kind of just helped me out with everything. Um, so I started to feel more comfortable. They they helped me with my homework. Uh, they made sure that if I did do something wrong, they would tell me off. Um, yeah, and they've just really helped me. And then the second year, I was only just, I just turned 16 for the second season. And yeah, it just felt normal. And I was just one of them. Was there ever... It's good to hear you had obviously friends on the team. Was there ever any tension? Uh, tension, Because I guess, like, I didn't think about it from the flip side. You just saying it there. You know, if you're an established pro, an older player, and then, you know, a young young girl comes in, you're almost probably feel a little bit insecure, right? Like the next generation coming up and taking a spot in the team or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple of difficult situations because I was, like, 15 when the season started. Um, and then... My second game I came on, I, I scored a goal, I think. And then the week after that, I was meant to start. But we had a couple girls that were obviously older, but they played national team as well. So then he had to make the decision between me and one of the girls that played for the national team at that moment in time. Um, and then obviously he picked me, which kind of yeah caused a bit of issues like within the changing room and like obviously saying like, oh, but she's only 15. Like she's got time. She doesn't need to play right now. But at that moment in time, I was good enough, um, which I'm probably quite grateful to the coaches I had there. Like they would just make that decision and they would just let me play. Um, and I think I've always paid that back in in goals. So um, repaid the fate. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, it was difficult sometimes because I mean I can understand that if if I come back from my ACL now and and I'm in form and I do well, but there's like a 15, 16 year old that would come through and and take your place. Like it must be quite difficult. Yeah, I'm sure. How do you, how did you navigate that scenario? Because, you know, at 15, 
you don't really have the sort of emotional intelligence or the kind of just the experience of being through, through something like that in the past to draw on and navigate it. it must have been um, a really difficult time for you, perhaps, that, those moments or... Yeah, like certain moments definitely were. Like I remember as well, like I was actually quite like quite good in school, so I was very well behaved. Um, always done my homework. I, like I really liked school, so that obviously helped. But then... What was your favourite subject? Uh, maths and history. So... Great combination. Doesn't really help you along the way. Um, Good for adding up all the goal records, I guess. Yeah, true. <laughs> but yeah, like I think obviously then when when you turn 15, 16, like you kind of get into your puberty's time and um, instead of misbehaving at school, I sometimes was quite a rebel in training because things either got too easy for me or um, I've had such a long day that I was quite tired in training. And sometimes because I knew I could get away with it, like I was just a bit of a rebel. And then obviously like I had girls and coaches around me who were really good with that and they would just tell me off and they would be like, come on, focus now or like up your game. Um, but it must not always have been easy for them to to handle me and deal with me in that sense either, uh, which along the way, because I had to grow up so quickly, I had to be more mature with that as well. Um, so I think it's only helped me for the rest of my career. Like, I mean, I am still a bit of a rebel and session killer sometimes, but I just like to be challenged. And um, the moment that is not happening and it becomes too easy, I'm like, come on, like, I want to go to that next level, so help me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it was quite difficult sometimes. But as I said, I had my two best mates around me and that helped me through it. As well as best friends, any mentors? or role models that you're still in touch with now that have sort of been with you from those early years of your career? Yeah, my second coach, uh, Jessica Torney. She's now head coach for Feyenoord. Um, but yeah, she's really helped me through it. Like, she was really patient with me. Um, she would understand if if I had stress from school going on or, like, the pressure going into national team because I started playing national team at that time. Um, I was 16, 17, and I started scoring goals. So they were like, oh, she's going to help us to the World Cup. She's going to help us win the World Cup. And... I was like, I've never been here. Like, I've never had this much attention before. Like, please help me. And, um, yeah, she really guided me through that in the early years. So is that pressure, and I'd like to talk about that in more detail later on, but just at this age when you're already sort of on the up and people are starting to pay attention to you, were you feeling that pressure at that time? It was either media speculation or people in, you know, the game, other players talking about you, singling you out. You felt it at that early age as well. Yeah, I think my last season at Heerenveen that started, like, um, I came from, like, my first season scoring 10 goals to then the second year, I think I scored 27, um, which I was already top goal scorer from the league at that point. But then leading into the third year, that's when I started playing national team. They were like, oh, she's got she's got it in her to score 40 goals. I think that season I ended up with 41, so i done quite well. But um, just... I wasn't playing at a team that was going to win the league, so it was quite hard for me to actually like get those numbers. And then the moment I wouldn't score for two or three games in a row, it was always directly from the media, like, oh, like she's not performing, she's not good enough, she's not ready for the next step, like she can be playing for a national team. Where, um, yeah, that was new, like that was new for all of us because women's football had never had that much attention. So then leading into the World Cup, I came off uh, a year that I transferred from Heerenveen to Bayern, so from semi-pro to professional, training three times, four times a week to six, seven times a week. Um, I was tired. Like, I, I went into that tournament in Canada, like, not knowing what was going to happen, how much pressure I would feel. 
And yeah, obviously looking back at that, like it wasn't what I expected it to be at all. Mm. You tell me a little bit more about the Bayern transfer because like you said, semi-pro to pro, but also culture shock. And you didn't speak the language when you made the move. No, no German, no English. Um, so yeah, I was 17. Uh, had a great season at Heerenveen and then there were like a couple of clubs that were really interested. So I went to see, uh, I think at that moment, PSG, Bayern, uh, Rosengard, because at that moment in time, Sweden was still top league. And I just had the best feeling with Bayern. Um, I think they wanted to make the next step and I could be part of the next step. So like I would be part of a development. They hadn't won the league in a long time. Um so I thought this is nice because it's a step in between. So I can develop and I can help hopefully help them develop into like this um yeah, top class German team. So made the step, um, got in, in Munich and I ended up living with Nora Holstadt and Katie Stengel, so a Norwegian and yeah, an American girl. And first month I don't think I've actually spoke a word to them. I had no idea what to say. I was just like pointing at things and I was like please help me. Like, I don't know how to do this. Um, You're just being really rude. Didn't want to talk to them. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously like my mom went over with me first and her English was perfect. Um, So she could kind of tell them like, oh, like her English isn't that good yet. Like she's going to work on her German. So they had to be patient with me. But then I think because I got there and I was injured a lot the first year because I wasn't used to the intensity and training and around that. Um, I spent a lot of time with them and then obviously after six, seven months I was like fluent in English, better in German and that really helped me uh, set up right for like my second and third year. How many languages can you speak now? Three. How did you, what's the best way to learn them? Is it literally just the conversation where you're taking lessons? Like how does it work? Yeah, to be in a country. I think once you, especially in Germany, like you need to. Um, they weren't always happy with my accent because I did still sound a bit Dutch, uh, which obviously is a bit sensitive to to some people. Um, but yeah, you need to be around them. I need to feel comfortable enough. I think what stopped me from speaking German early on is because I got too shy in actually speaking it. So I would only speak it if we, we had won the league the second, like the first and the second year and we had a party. So like I had a couple of beers in me and that's when I started speaking German and the girls were like, wow, like you're unbelievable. Like you understand everything. Like you can speak it. Why do you not do it? And I was like, I just get really nervous. Like speaking it when, yeah, when I'm around you guys and whatever. And um, yeah, so after that, they were like, no, we're going to speak German with you. There's no way back now. I was like, okay. I hope they hadn't um, been speaking like, you know, you're in earshot and having a conversation about you in German thinking they can't understand, you can't understand what they're talking about and the whole time you're listening in or anything like that. No, never had that. Um but to be fair, if they would have done that, I probably would have just pulled them up right there and yeah. then and be like, can I join in speak about myself? <laughs> so, yeah. You talk about the accent. You've got a little bit of a Scottish twang, I think, in your yeah. English as well. Where's that come from? I'm not going to list that anymore. Yeah. Uh, my ex-girlfriend, like Lisa, she's Scottish. Um, so when we started dating in Munich, like that's obviously when I, I went from being decent in English to then being better and better. And like I picked up so many things from her, then from Emma Mitchell, Kim Little, um, yeah, so I don't think I will be losing it anymore. So, like you said, you're starting to get into the international team. I think first game, you get about five minutes. Second international game, get 15 minutes and you score a hat-trick. They haven't really dropped you since then, have they? No, that was me in. Um, 
Yeah, I remember that because like first game was Albania away. Uh, that whole trip, I was so so nervous to be away with them. I was like, wow, these are the big girls, and I was like, I'm not ready for this yet. Uh, got a couple minutes. Then against Portugal, came on for 15, and I think I touched the ball three times, and three of them went to top corner, and I was like, oh, God, like, this is going to go really quick right now. So then the game after that, that was my first start against Norway. Um, and, yeah, never really been back out since. In moments like that throughout your career, do you ever have to try and just sort of stop and absorb what's happening to you? Like you, just, you said there, it was, you know, three touches, three goals, and it's gone so fast. Do you ever find yourself trying to sort of sit back and be like, you are here, you are, I'm on the pitch, I've just done this. Does it, because I, with really intense experiences like that, I can almost fly by and you don't, don't absorb it. Nah, to be fair, like I'm really, really bad in that. And I think one of the reasons, like, I mean, Beth always says like things happen for a reason and I'm like, no, they don't. Like you can, you can work for them or like sometimes, yes, it happened, but like there doesn't need to be a special reason behind that. But I think now I have been injured, like I have had a lot more time to reflect on things. Um, I've obviously been extremely busy, like we've played a Euros, a World Cup, an Olympics and another Euros all within five years. And I've never had the time to settle down and be like, wow, this was amazing to be part of or I've done really well here or I should have done better here. Like there's not been much time to reflect on things. Um, And for me as well, like I never really live in the here and now like if we last summer or like the summer before at the olympics like i was in form i scored every single game but after the games the girls came up to me and they were like oh my god you were amazing today or, or like let's do this and this and i was like no like we've got a game again in two days like i need to prepare for the next game so um i think if anything like i need to really get better in trying to live in the here and now and, and enjoy moments there's kind of a balance to be struck there though right because do you get to the position you're in to enjoy those moments if you don't have that singularity of focus and you don't have that drive to be thinking about, okay, well, we've done that. Who cares? We're on to the next thing. Watch out for the light, then. I know. No. Um, big, like. el- big elbows from the gym. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I did get so far in football must have been because I'm extremely driven and, and I want to do well and I want to perform and um, on and off the pitch, obviously. Um but yeah, at the same time, I think if I probably would and like look back on my career with a lot more enjoyment if I do allow myself to have those moments and to be really happy about what I've uh, what we've done as a team mostly. Um, so yeah, I think you need to have a mix in it. I think if you go one way, either way, it's probably not healthy and it's probably not what you want to get out of your career. In terms of those happiest moments. Um... Would you say that captaining the national side was one of them? Um, yeah, it's a proud moment. Like I think every time you put on your national team kit and you go out and you sing your like your anthem, it's it's just a special feeling. You can't compare it to club football. You can't compare it to winning something with your club. Like it's just yeah, like it's really nice to play for your country. That's saying like that's me saying that. Although sometimes I wish I was Scottish because I love Scotland. But um, yeah, no, it was really, it was a proud moment. And I think especially for me, like I've done it over the last couple of years, like a couple of times uh, when the girls came off, like when Sari van Veenendaal or Sharida came off. But for me in that game against France to be uh, captain after I had just had COVID was a really special moment to be fair. Could you talk about 
that feeling a little bit more for someone who is never going to represent their country as any sport. You said it was a special feeling. Try and try and explain it to me. Like, what does it feel like when you're when you're stood there, you're singing the anthem, the shirts on? What are you thinking about at that moment in time? I think I see it not as much as me representing the country. I see it as me like representing all the young girls that are playing football. So I see myself as a role model within football and that is part of it. So like I get to put on that shirt, I get the captain of the country, I get to score goals for the Netherlands by hoping that I'm inspiring the next generation. Um, it's not so much about me or about my family. Like I know that they love being in the stadium, I love being there, but I think the thing that's keeping me going to play football right now is probably that I feel like we've still got a lot to do for the young girls out there. Um, yeah, and that's probably one of my biggest motivations. Like, And one of the proudest things you can probably get from your career is like, yeah, inspiring young girls to be just like you. So what do those next steps, next successes look like then? Because I was going to say, you know, more personal accolades than I can probably accurately count. I tried. There's so many different lists. It's hard to knock them all up. Same for team, team results. Does the, sort of the next stage of success for you, is it on the pitch? Is it off the pitch? I think it's um, a bit of both still. I think before I got injured, um, I've had so many thoughts about like, how long do I still want to do this? Um, how long, what do I still want to win mostly? Because um, obviously I've been lucky enough to win a Euros at home. I've played a World Cup final. I've played an Olympics. Um, what is realistic to still win? Uh, one of the things people say to me is like, oh, you need to win the Champions League. And I was like, well, if it happens, it happens. If not, then okay. Um, but I think while being injured now, like for me, if I want to come back, there's only one way of coming back and that's trying to be better than I have been before and win things with the club, with the national team. Um, and the focus outside of the pitch will definitely be on letting the game grow um, in Holland, in England. I think, obviously, I'm a Wartel ambassador. Um, I work with Common Goal. Um, I want, yeah, children, not just girls, like children in general, like to have equal opportunities and, and opportunities to, to start playing football and sports. And sometimes that doesn't need to be football. Sometimes that is going to be tennis or athletics or gymnastics. Um, but we need to give yeah children the freedom and a chance to find out what they want to do. Um, and I really want to talk to you about that in a bit more detail later on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We've spoken about the highs, so we need to talk about the lows as well. Um, you mentioned that World Cup in 2015. I mentioned in the introduction that you considered retiring after that World Cup. You've mentioned that you were tired and that the pressure was already mounting before you got there. So 
maybe it's best for me to just kind of ask you to talk about that tournament, the before, the after, you know, in your own words, rather than putting them in your mouth. Um, first of all, I was really young. I was only uh, 18. I had never been away from home to the other side of the world for longer than a week. Um, so being in Canada with the team for five weeks was a big step. Um, the year before, we, we played the playoffs to get to the World Cup and we played Italy at home and away. Um, at home, we played 1-1 and away we won 2-1 and I scored all three goals. So um, going into the World Cup, all the media were like, oh, Miedema is going to help us win the World Cup, which was unrealistic anyway because it was our first World Cup with Holland. Like we'd never been there before. So it was already something like a big step for us to even go. Um, I think then then going to like arriving in Canada, as I said, like I've had a long season, multiple injuries, wasn't top fit going there. And the moment we landed, I just got really, really stressed. Um, we had a bit of a different team, like older generation, um, only a couple young girls. It was quite hard to fit in. And yeah, just, just being there and playing the first couple games, like I didn't score a goal. So then you kind of put pressure on yourself. And um, yeah, media in, in Holland can be quite uh, negative and direct. So yeah, I had to find out in that way. And um, during the tournament, I remember like at that moment, calling my boyfriend, Stefan, a lot, calling the, calling the family and be like, oh, like, what can I do? Like, what is best for me to do? But they had never been in that situation or position before either. So they didn't really know what to do or how to help me. And um, yeah, throughout the tournament, I lost a lot of weight because like I just didn't have the energy or even like almost like confidence to like keep eating and and just doing the normal things and um yeah getting back home from that world cup I think was really tough like because the build-up was so intense and you were so excited to go and then it was this massive disappointment and I was like if this is how I'm going to be feeling the rest of my career or every single big tournament I do not want it anymore um and then obviously on top of that came that I had to go back to Munich two weeks later. And I was like, I want to be comfortable. I want to be with my friends and my family. Um, so I don't want to go back. Um, but yeah, my mom thought different about that. And I am quite happy that, yeah, she did. So did you, even though it's obviously not just, it's not your fault, do you know what I mean? It's it's a team game always. But you felt personally responsible or you felt a degree of personal responsibility for how the team performed. Um, not even so much performance-wise, to be fair. Like, I think we got to uh, the round of 16, which for a World Cup was already a big step, like getting out the group. Um, I didn't score, but I didn't play extremely terrible either. Uh, obviously, I would have liked to be able to score a couple of goals and help the team, but um, circumstances yeah, considered, it wasn't too bad. Um, so, yeah, and I never blamed myself for that. I think the only thing that after the tournament and knowing now uh, it's not even blaming like I just wish that I would have done things differently like I wish that not just me like I wish that within women's football within our association within the team at that moment like people had helped me they had like people had played tournaments before they had more experience than me like I needed someone to be there for me um and I had to be more open for that I was quite closed off so instead of me going out and be like please help me I went within myself and I try to block everything and everyone around me uh, out of it which um, yeah I can only try and help young players right now to yeah help prevent them to go 
through that. Um, we've got one young girl at national team right now. Her name is Vika. She's 17 and she's going to the first World Cup. So when I was in camp last weekend, I was like, make sure you find your moments to uh, call with your family, speak to the girls. Um, there's no pressure on you. Like it's a bit different because she's not going to go there play and they don't expect her to win it for them. But um, yeah, just give her little tips and be like, try and try and be open for the help around you and the experience around you. And yeah, I really needed someone like that um, in 2015, but that person just wasn't there. So you come back from the tournament. I mean, how close were you to quitting? Because I think I saw in that interview you said to your mum that you w were going to or wanted to. How close were you to it? Yeah, like I spoke again to Jessica Torney, so the person that has helped me through the first three years. Um, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. She was like, why not? So then I gave my reasons. I was like, I don't want to deal with the pressure. I don't want to um, having to go away to the other side of the world and, and not be with my family and friends. Um, and she was like, but what do you get back for it? And I was like, nothing. And then I just hang up and she was like, okay. So then she obviously had a chat with my mom and dad as well. And then my mom was like, it's not always going to be easy. Like just, she didn't really put pressure on me for saying like, you need to go back to Munich and you need to keep playing for like in another 10 years. But she was just like, go back, see how you feel and and go from there. Um, I did actually speak with my Bayern coach at that moment as well, Thomas Werler. And I was like, this is how I feel. And if I don't feel better after preseason, then that's it. Um, which I luckily did feel a bit better after preseason. Probably not as good as I wanted to, but um, I kind of was back at my normal level, normal weight as well. Um, so I felt fresher. And then the first game of the season, it couldn't have started any better for me, to be fair. Like, I think I scored a couple goals and that kind of got me back into that flow. Um, and then the next big decision was there because I had to turn up for national team again after. And I was set in stone on not going and saying, like, I want time off. Um, I'll return again once some of the girls have left or once I feel better myself. Um, but, yeah, then Jessica Tony and Serena Wichmann convinced me to, to come back into camp. Have you found in each of the conversations we've had about sort of how you're feeling in a moment and also how you're doing on the pitch. How directly connected are the two? For me, massively. Um, I think a lot of players might be different, but like I play my best football on the pitch when I'm happy off it. Um, I've always been like that. Um, once I feel free and I feel like I can control myself off it, I feel like then football is like, like a motivation and a high for me where if I struggle off the pitch uh, for whatever reason if I go through um, just a, like a difficult period of time or go through anxiety um, football isn't like a relief to me then like it builds up extra pressure um, which I think a lot of players might understand a lot of them won't understand because they see football as like that's my distraction I'm going onto the pitch everything else doesn't matter but I'm diff like different in that sense. So like if I struggle off the pitch and I go onto the pitch, I take my struggles with me on the pitch. I start getting frustrated with myself, with my teammates, um, which again, I think over years I've become better and better in to like try and disconnect them from one another, unless I'm happy because then I want to take that onto the pitch with me. 
but um i've been working with a psychologist for like five six years now and and trying to just be as open as i can be to to see if that would yeah would help me into a better player but mostly be more happy and well more often happy off the pitch has it worked are you more happy um well <laughs> sometimes um we've obviously like i've been i've had like a ridiculous six seven months to be fair obviously with like me and Beth both doing our ACLs, uh, her mom passing away. Um, there's been a couple of issues back at home as well. And like, it, it has been really tough, but somehow, as I said before, like, because I've not had the pressure of having to perform on the pitch, I've had time to um, process things and just try and fix them up directly. Um, so yeah, I am, I feel a bit more free than I, I felt in the past. And I think, I mean, wisdom comes with age. I'm not that old, but I know in in football years, I'm starting to feel old. I'm not sure about that. I felt that when I was looking at these questions and writing and thinking about it, and you know, looking back, being like, "Oh, do you remember that World Cup?" And it's like you're only 26 years old. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like... I have been around for like 12, yeah. uh, 12 years now. I'm going into like my 13th uh, professional season, where a lot of players will be happy if they even get it to 13. So. All the girls, like at national team, at, at Arsenal, like I'm not the oldest one, but I am probably one of the most experienced ones. So that comes with pressure, that comes with um, expectations, and I'm happy to have them. I'm happy to carry them. But um, I think the most important thing along every single journey I've had so far is that I've started to realize it's not me against the world. I just need people around me that can um, help me along the way and and yeah, keep me right. So you mentioned this last season and I saw on your Instagram, you wrote, you described it as what a season of extreme lows as well as unreal highs and quote, on a personal level, the toughest one yet. How much of that is the stuff you just spoke about, you know, in relation to football, i.e. injuries to you and Beth? Or is it the stuff that's happening off there? I mean, you mentioned Beth's mum passing, so. Um, it's definitely been both, I think. If you go back to summers, like Euro summer, um, I obviously went into that tournament with high expectations of myself. I've had a good season. I felt good. Um, the lead-up game to it, like against Finland, I scored two goals. I played good against Sweden, and then I got COVID. Um, been in my bed for 10 days, missed two games, um, which has been a really weird experience, to be fair, like to be at the Euros, but to not be at the Euros. Um, then I played against France, but I probably shouldn't have played because I wasn't recovered like enough to play 120 minutes anyway. Um, so yeah, like the Euros ended up being a massive disappointment for me personally, but then at the same time for England and women's football in England, it was probably the best summer ever. Um, so heading back into the season, I wasn't fit. I was still recovering from COVID. Like I must have had long COVID somehow. Um, so I started playing every single minute again, started scoring goals, felt good. And then, bum, in October, I was like burned out. I was like, I don't want to play. Like I need to get away. Um, pulled out of national team in the October camp and said to Jonas and the club, I was like, it's been too much. Like I need time to... Um, recover and and switch off. So I went home for a weekend, got back into training and playing, and the same thing just happened. Like I started playing, I didn't enjoy it, I got really tired, and I was like, in November I was like, no, like I need to get away away, um, which I took quite literally because I went to Australia. 
I booked a flight on the Friday night and I left on the Monday morning. So um, yeah, so I was 24 hours away, went to see my best mate, Mroos, switched off from football for two weeks completely. And I came back and I was like, I feel good, like I'm ready. Um, Played four or five games, scored every single game, probably got back to how I should be playing and then done my ACL. So um, yeah, it's been really up and down. Like I think mentally, physically, like it's been one of the toughest years, Um, not just for me, but with all the injuries we've had at Arsenal. Um, I mean, we've obviously had four ACLs and like a couple of um, big injuries, which comes with the increase of games um, with the girls playing big tournaments in summers now. Uh, you see it all over Europe at different clubs. Um, but yeah, to be part of that team and to having to pick other girls up when they're feeling really low, like is obviously mentally quite tough. Um, but the only thing I can say about that is that I've never played in a team that's been so close and good for one another going through everything as right now at Arsenal so that's been yeah really good and nice at the same time to be part of as well there's so much in there that I want to talk about the, the first of which I talk too much don't I no it's, it's <laughs> no it's great it's 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 fascinating I'm gonna listen to you talk all day uh, to be honest with you um let's start with the with the breaks taking breaks for your mental health because you know particularly within sport which I, I may have said this earlier you know it's a very competitive you know, um, environment, everyone's looking for a weakness in their opposition. And I'm sure at times to be able to even just suggest and say, mentally, I need a break, not physically, mentally, I need a break. That must be a hard thing in and of itself before you even start taking the time off and thinking about going back. How important have those breaks been for you, whether it's because you've asked for it or it's been self-imposed because of an injury? How important is that for your sort of mental state to, to have that time off to reflect? Um, it's honestly the most important thing. Like I know that me as a player, like I've been quite fortunate over the last couple of years to be able to say like, okay, I need, because I've done it before uh, and I probably will have to do it again. But um, I've been quite fortunate with me being me that clubs and national teams were willing to, to help me out. And then the moment I got back and I felt fresh again, like my level is obviously high enough to then just return to play and and be in the team again. Um, So I've never felt like, which is good, I've never felt like anyone has used it against me, um, which is I think is a really important thing. Um, I do understand though from a lot of other girls' point of view, like if you're close to playing but not always playing, you don't want to take two or three weeks off because the moment you come back, you're scared you're not going to play. And that's where obviously, as you say, like in a competitive environment, it's very difficult to look after yourself. Um, the only thing that I want to advise people is like, please do so. Because I've not done that in the past and it's led me to um, a lot of different emotions and, and difficulties off the pitch uh, that led to like panic, like panic attacks, uh, obviously depression. And like, I don't want to let it come that far again. Like I know myself now, I know when I need to break and, and say, stop, it's enough. I need my time away. Um, and I've learned that over the years, um, which again, I probably don't fully understand myself yet because well, I'm pretty sure I don't. Um, but yeah, just to start to understand myself, like um, I know it's really important for me to be open and honest about that. And the moment that like someone would not be able to give that to me uh, would also mean that I would probably have to move into like a different environment. Mm. And as set, setting those boundaries, 
helped you with, well, for example, depression or panic attacks, being able to say, that's my limit. I know where it is. I'm not going past it. It's helped. Yeah, no, definitely. I think along the way, like you find ways to, um, to deal with situations a lot better. Like, you know, okay, I've done this last time. It didn't work. So I need to adjust it or like, oh, I have done this last time and it worked. So, um, I think past experiences can help you not fall into the same rhythm or like change how you feel about things and start getting them under control a lot earlier. Um, I also, again, do think that within football, within sports and like society in general, mental health is still such a big issue. Like it's something that you don't really want to be open about or like speak about too much because it can be used against you. So like we need to start creating a safer environment like within everywhere for people to say like I'm not okay or like I do need help or I have been struggling with like anxiety panic like it's okay um so one of the things that I'm obviously quite close with and like have been speaking out about as well um but yeah like we we need to start accepting that the pressure we do put on players is so much these days with social media with fans um with sold out stadiums now that it's not just leading to big injuries, but it's also leading to uh, people having mental health issues. So how much of this is to do with the sort of demands of the sort of the season, the schedule, the calendar? Because you mentioned it earlier, right? Really demanding domestic season, European tournaments, domestic tournaments, before we even start talking about the international game and those big summers, you know? And really, unless you do have, well, it's not actually that rare, quite a lot of people are having these catastrophic injuries. Without them, there's not much of a break. How much of what the women's game is going through, what the women, the female players are going through, is to do with that schedule, do you think? I think, I mean, it says enough that the injuries have increased over years while the games have been increased. Um, when I started playing football, professionally like I went from having 20 30 games a season to now playing if I play every single game I'll probably hit 60 65 games um with that comes that the the game around us so like um obviously like medical teams clubs national teams they've not had the time and the capacity to develop with the new schedule um we've obviously increased in squad numbers now at Arsenal like I think the club is doing anything and everything they can to like catch up and protect players, but we need help from above. Um, I think it's it's down to FIFA and UEFA to say, okay, till here, not any further. Um, but they won't because for them it's about marketing, it's about money, it's about um, yeah, trying to get as many games in as possible within this space and time. Um, yeah, to just make money and uh, in the end, like we become one of them little like people in in the whole bigger picture um but we're not protected so you see a lot of coaches and players speaking out about we need to adjust the schedule we need to make sure that it's not going to increase again but as long as FIFA and UEFA don't want to do anything with it we're quite stuck in that sense and to be clear as well it's you know it's it's not just an Arsenal thing I think the actual divide it's a gender divide right these ACL injuries they're happening to women much more than they're happening to men. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's definitely not just an Arsenal thing. Like, we've been really unlucky that we've had four this season. Um, but if you look around at other top clubs, like, I mean, if you look at the top 20 from the Blonde or this season, seven at this moment have actually done their ACL. 
um, yes, women are more likely to do their ACL, which I think research has been done over the last couple of years, but no real answers has come up yet. So the only thing we as players need to push for right now is like keep researching, but also invest within your medical team right now so that what you've got in place right now is going to be better for girls to hopefully prevent them doing their ACLs. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things you mentioned in that answer that I wanted to talk to you about as well was your popularity off the pitch. Um, and it's kind of connected to the mental health side of things as well, because I think you're, I get the sense that you're quite a private person. You've said that, you know, you don't like being the center of attention. How have you handled, uh, you know, as the profile of the women's game increases, obviously so does your personal one, your celebrity increases. How have you coped with that, you know, sort of spontaneous interactions with fans and stuff when you're out out and about? I haven't. Um... I I haven't really. Um I, I am just a really awkward person. Like, um when when fans come up to me and, and they shout at me and they want pictures and they're like, Oh, you're the best player ever, like you've made my day I'm just standing there and I'm like not really sure what to say. Like, um it obviously it does feel amazing, like and I am happy that I am that person, role model, football player for them. But it's something that I don't think I'll ever get used to. Um, if I go out for dinner in London and um, as you say, like I am quite private. So like I do like to just go out with my friends or family and, and not be disturbed. But if, if people then do it, um, I always get a bit uncomfortable. I also think it's because the nice thing about women's football is that fans feel really related to us because we are accessible. Like we are open to like doing things with them. Like after the games, we do give like pictures and autographs and everything. But people don't know when to stop or what is too far. Um, which again, although it's set to say and to think, sometimes we probably do need to move a bit more to men's football to protect our players. Um, and yeah, obviously you hope that fans have got the respect and um, a, a good willingness behind that and be like, okay, we'll just do a picture and then that's it. But if I go out and I've got a beard or whatever, like you can see people videoing you or like making pictures and I'm like, no, that's too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it, to have... I guess you you want to be successful, you want to be at the top of your game and some of the price you have to pay for that is you lose your anonymity, right? The the, the behaviour that if anyone else was in that pub, no one would be filming that person. You know, I was just having a beer, you know, it's, it's irrelevant, but it's because of who you are. And I think you're right as well to talk about that difference between the women's and the men's game because I think you watch a game and you see afterwards all the players are there talking to the fans in the stands, you know, like you said, taking photos, doing autographs. I think it's one of the best, one of, there are many, but one of the best things about the game is the connection. You know, it almost feels, uh, you know, you know, like a non-league side. It doesn't, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I'm doing the game now, but you know how like the players and the fans, they all know each other. And I think that's a proper club feeling. I think it's one of the wonderful things about it, you know. It can be a positive and it can be a negative, can't it? No, but like, as you say, like, I think that is the beautiful thing about it. And like, that's something that us players, like, we don't want to lose. Yeah. Like, we want to be able to say, thank you so much for coming to the game today, make a picture, give them an autograph. But it it needs to be a two-way thing. So like, if we do our bit, then the other side needs to be happy with what we give them. Mm. And... um. We don't want to get into situations that players start feeling uncomfortable or even scared to go up to fence and be like, oh, I really hope they don't say anything bad to me today or 
I mean, especially with social media these days, like type of abuse that happens on Twitter and and Instagram and Facebook, like girls do see that and do feel that even if I'm not on a lot of platforms, like I actually sometimes scroll through Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram. I've actually got a private Instagram that no one is even allowed to see or follow. Um, I don't want to see things, but you always will see things. And if it's not you seeing it, you'll hear it through either other girls or you hear it through interviews or people around you. And like, I think we just need to be a bit more thoughtful of what we say and careful uh, in the way of not trying to, yeah, make people struggle a lot with that. I've always wondered why if, you know, someone sees like a nasty comment or like a tweet and it's like, oh, did you see someone said this really horrible thing about you? Yeah, <laughs> but like people... I didn't actually, I don't want to know about it. People say, and like I've actually, I've had this argument with my mom and dad so many times because in the beginning, they're not as bad now anymore. Like they like to see and follow everything about you. Yeah. So like they want to see all the good things, but the moment they see one bad thing, they start panicking. They're like, oh, oh my God, this has happened. And I'm like, mom, like I don't want to know. Like you can see it if you want to see it, but like I'm not seeing it. So I think, again, that's probably a conversation players will need to have with family and friends mm-hmm. to be, especially going to a World Cup now, people are going to have opinions. Women's football has never been watched more than it has been watched right now. So then players need to start saying to their friends and family, we do not want to hear this. Like, we don't want to hear anything about comments, about people's opinions, because then you can protect yourself. Is there a connection between that, this sort of um, inner privacy we're talking about and when you're playing, you don't really celebrate when you score. The, the two things connected? Um, I think a bit. I think it just shows a bit of my character. Like I'm quite, I'm quiet and peaceful in the back of things. Um, I think I'm quite like I am respectful as a person, which I think for me, scoring a goal is great. But at the same time, it makes the other team not feel great. So. Um, I would not want to celebrate in front of them or annoy them or yeah, get over that line of like being disrespectful towards them. Uh, so considerate. I know, I know. Um, I've obviously had a couple of we- weird celebrations uh, when I became all-time top scorer for the national team. I was about to ask you about that. A big roly-poly. Um, it was a deal with my brother. He was in the stadium in that moment and he made the video in the morning saying like, in the first half you're going to be scoring on that goal so that means you're equaling it. And then in the second half, you're going to be scoring on this goal and I'll be sitting right here, so you better do the roly-poly towards me. And I text him back saying, this is never going to happen, but if it happens, I'll do it. So we scored in the first half and then I scored in the second half on that side and I was just like, I turned around and I thought, oh, I am going to do this. And then I went for that. It looked really stiff, so it wasn't that good. But yeah, it was obviously one of the big celebrations I've done. Um. We've been talking about sort of your personal goals, talking about, you just mentioned there, the women's game is at sort of the biggest it's been. Where do you see the next place that it goes to? What what do you view as sort of the growth for the game as a whole rather than for you personally? Um, I think women's football will keep developing for many years from now on. Um, I've always said, I hope it's not going to develop into men's football. I hope it's going to keep some uh, characteristics um, we don't need to go to the same money because it's ridiculous money that's going around in the men's game and I think the beautiful thing about women's football is that a lot of players are aware of what's going on in the world what's going on within football Um, they use their platform for like a greater good 
Um, we've obviously got girls at Arsenal again like extremely intelligent with Kim Little doing work with FISA for uh, people in the world like Lotte Ruben Moy who goes out to um, do charity work through the club uh, with a lot of different girls as well and yeah it's not it's not just about money and, and football like there's so many different things and I do think I mean I don't want England to win everything in the next couple of years but I it, it, yeah you do <laughs> um, it does come with success so like as long as like the national team is doing well and we get people into our league games it's going to be it's easy to marketing like marketing wise to actually get people back in so um, they need to keep doing well for women's football in England to keep developing um, and then I do think that over two, three years, we hopefully play in like in the Emirates every single league game and we get 30, 40,000 people every single weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the financial side of things, you mentioned earlier you work with Common Goal, giving 1% of your salary to the organisation to help further all of these causes, which I'm going to ask you to talk about in a minute. But I guess the flip side is if you if you were on that kind of money that the men's game are on, obviously that's more money more money for charity, right? So it's like you know, it's not as, not as simple as keeping the cash out of it, maybe. Or nah, it's both. Like I mean, as I said, like don't get me wrong. Like I'm in a fortunate position with what I am getting for my football uh, for something that I love doing, and then you've obviously got like marketing deals around that as well. Um, so yes, my one percent won't go as far as what it does in the men's side, but. At the same time, I don't think any footballer needs to earn 50, 100 million a year to to be happy with what they can be doing. Um, obviously, you, you'd like to think that in a couple of years we start going into the direction of like a lot more footballers donating this one percent, or a lot of, like a lot of footballers doing different projects like around um, like besides football. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I would love to earn a hundred million a year and and put that into war like I'm like adding it to war child, um, but it's not realistic and it's also not something that I think we should be moving into. Mm-hmm. So could you tell me more about Common Goal then and the work that you do with them? Um, yeah, I mean I've obviously been part of it for a couple of years now. Um, I became a ambassador for war child beforehand, and uh, I've been lucky enough to actually be able to like partner them up. So as I said, like my addition goes to uh, Warchild directly through Common Goal, um, which they will obviously use for uh, programs yeah, in in war countries. So like they're really big in Ukraine right now, obviously. They've got um, programs in, in Syria right now. And um, yeah, it's for me, that's something really nice to be part of because, again, it comes back to me feeling like I'm a role model and wanting to improve not just the game, but like give children opportunities. Um, and yeah, I can help in that sense with that. Throughout this whole conversation, I've I've noticed that this talk about being a role model, how important it is to you that football is a vehicle for something bigger than just the game. And I think it's really striking and, and really impressive. And I sort of, I wonder why, maybe it's because I don't hear about it. It's not as widespread or as prevalent in like other aspects of football, I, you know. I'm sure there are, there are plenty of other good people in the game, right? But I don't know. It just, with you, it seems to be the reason. Do you know what I mean? It's like central to what you're doing, whereas perhaps it, it might not be for, for other players. Yeah, I think, as I said, like we've definitely got girls at Arsenal that are really um, aware of things and, and that probably also use that as one of the factors that they are playing football. Um, as I said, like I think Lotte is one of the like the main examples for it. 
Um, but yeah, a lot of girls obviously play football just because they love it and because they they earn money with it and they see different different cities, different countries. Uh, but everyone's got their own motivations in that sense. Um, I do like to believe, obviously, that in men's football and in other sports as well, that you've got a lot of good good people out there that are willing to um, improve their sports, but also the world um, in its total. I mean, obviously, like Juan Mata is one of the, the people that actually set up Common Goal, um, help setting it up. So, yeah, you, you've got more than enough good people out there, but sadly enough, we don't hear enough about it because it's probably not as exciting as someone being a rebel and doing something stupid. Possibly. Um, there's... There's also an extra degree of responsibility that comes with it, though, as well, right? You know, if people look up to you, I guess, like you just said, right, you can't, you don't really want to be rebelling. You don't really want to be doing stupid things because there are people that are looking up to you as a role model. And perhaps that can manifest itself as an additional pressure, you know? Yeah, for me, it doesn't, though, because I think everything I do um, comes back to how I would want to be treated. So I would never do... Um, something that would make myself feel uncomfortable if someone else would, would do it to me. So it kind of just comes back to um, how I've been taught to be from my mom and dad. So like how I grew up, um, I think because it comes quite natural to me, like I don't feel it like a big heavy weight on my shoulders. Like obviously, as I said, sometimes I do feel that weight on my shoulders, but it's from a performing side of things. It's not from the development side of things like, I think I get a lot of energy out of it. So instead of having a day off and going to the cinema, going a co- like having a coffee uh, with the girls, like sometimes I go to one of the centers from Warchild or I go play football with girls from the foundation, uh, which Lotta obviously does as well. And like that brings me energy. So I think it works again. It works two ways. Like I get energy from doing it and hopefully my energy helps them from like developing. I know we said earlier that you've still got plenty of time left to play. You know, it's not it's not like a time to be doing big retrospectives about your career, but, you know, in the future, when you look back, what would you like your legacy to be? Um, I mean, I think on the pitch, I've worked quite well on that already. Um, I, I've always said I wanted to be top goal scorer from the national team, which I am. Um, I am going to reach them 100 goals pretty soon, hopefully. Um, but I think off the pitch, like I would love to be able to be part of, um, yeah, development of women's football in Holland. Um, I think I am part of that already together with like, well, Sari van Veenendaal a lot. We've made massive steps with our association to um, provide the youth teams, the the national team from, um, yeah, just being world class uh, with facilities, with opportunities, financially, everything. Um, but I don't think we're done yet. Like, I think we still got the responsibility to bring the women's game to a higher level. And that's not just us playing in the end that's in front of 60,000 people, but that's also with, well, England putting in the law that every single girl needs to be able to play football in schools. Um, there's so many steps we still need to make. And um, it's something that right now we've got time time for anyway to brainstorm and to make sure that we, we start up a couple projects that um, yeah are helping that development. With me, Demar. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.